Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to Medieval Church History. I'm Teresa Holman, and with me is Father Michael Witt. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Teresa. It's good to be back, and we're doing show number five today. We are, yeah. This yeah. has been a really interesting series. I think I, uh, I haven't known that much about these early times, and so I guess I've known a little bit more maybe about the apostles and life. I've read a little bit about that, but I've right. missed this period, and yeah, so I'm really excited. And, and what we're doing now the last several weeks, we will be for a couple more weeks, is sort of taking a survey of where the world was before 800, running up to 800, which really is the kickoff date for our, um, okay. our look at, at church history, I mean, our medieval uh, church history. So what we've done so far is we started out, remember the uh, the first session I call the mad, mad, mad Merovingian world? Yes. Um, we saw what a chaotic mess uh, Europe was. Um, you couldn't turn to the uh, the political order to find stability. That, that was not going to be there. And then we looked at the Roman ruins themselves. We mm-hmm. looked at the institutions that had been part of the Roman Empire, and the Western Empire, and how they had collapsed and they were laying in ruins, not entirely dead. Uh, there was still material to work with, but there they were. Somebody needed to put them back together again. And then we shifted. The last couple of weeks we've shifted over to the east, and we've seen how the Roman Empire, Roman civilization, survived in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, mm-hmm. and then how, after Justinian, it really changes into a Greek uh, empire once again, loses much of that Roman nature, that, that uh, general Mediterranean nature. So the question is, what institution, what group is going to bring Europe back together again and give it that synthesis that it's, it's going to need? And I turn once again to the three um, great historians of the period for uh, some insight. And so those, of course, are Joseph Strayer, Christopher Dawson, and Brian Tierney. And so each one of them, if you remember at the beginning, we looked at, at how they broke out their books yes. into uh, the different chapters. And each one of them points to the church as being instrumental. Let me just real quick give a couple quickie little quotes from each of them. Joseph Strayer says this in his chapter, The Church. Okay, He says, as the Roman Empire in the West slowly collapsed, the Christian Church emerged as the one stable institution among the ruins. That's his thesis. That's my thesis. I think if you look at, at everything that was going on in that period of time, over a couple hundred years, it's only the Christian church that's going to be a stable force and is going to bring uh, order back out in amongst all of those ruins. Christopher Dawson has a chapter he entitles The Catholic Church. And he says this, he says, the influence of Christianity on the formation of Christian, uh, of, I'm sorry, of formation of European unity is a striking example of the way in which the course of historical development is modified and determined by the intervention of new spiritual influences. So again, very important. And then finally, uh, Brian Tierney in his chapter, which is the Christian Church. And he says the following, he says, While in most respects the late Roman Empire was a time of decline, 
in the field of religion. It was a period of immense vitality. And now a word from the European Constitution, the European yes. Union Constitution of 2005. Of. Are you ready? There is no church. There's there nothing. was no church, right? There's no mention. No mention mm -hmm. of the church, no mention of Christianity, nothing. Uh, these guys have gone. And I think that says a lot more about our contemporary perspective than about the objective reality. Yes, I, yes, definitely. Yeah. You know, our story, as I said, begins in, at Christmas of 800 AD. That's the moment in which Charlemagne is crowned by uh, Pope Leo III. Um, remember, that's the icon that we'll be using for mm -hmm. the uh, the website. And uh, it, 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 but we've been looking at all of the players coming to that before that. Uh, we've looked at the Merovingian Franks. Uh, we'll be looking at the Carolingian Franks. We've been uh, looking at the Byzantines, the ruins of the Western Roman Empire. Later on we're going to be looking at yet another player, um, the Muslims, Islam, and then the Roman Catholic Church, which is what we're going to zero in today. It's the Christian Catholic Church that will be the agent of synthesis that's going to bring all of these together even in some way Islam. The, the interesting interplay, um, w once again, I think, is we look at um, medieval history on, on the broadest of, of levels. We see a lot of dialogue that goes on between these two great religions over many, many centuries. Nowadays, we tend to just, um, everything is done with sound bites and, and bumper sticker slogans. And so we have this impression that there has been this huge cultural war between Christianity and Islam throughout these many centuries, where there were the Crusades, and we'll talk about those. But um, once again, living in a, um, an age of, of historical amnesia, where we don't remember our past, we forget that there is a lot of uh, interplay back and forth between the two, contributions back and forth uh, between the two. To think about Thomas Aquinas without thinking about Averroes is impossible. Uh, when you think about um, Pope Sylvester II, uh, that, that great pope of, of uh, 1000 AD, he studied under Jewish and Islamic scholars in Spain. Um, there, there is, a, and there, there are many times that there are very interesting dialogues. Uh, Francis of Assisi, even going to the Sultan in um, in Egypt and preaching before him during a crusade, <laughs> just phenomenal stuff. So anyway, Beautiful. that's that's stuff to keep in mind. But uh, bringing all of this together, also two other players that I didn't mention right now, uh, I'll, and I'll mention them right now. I didn't mention them before were the Magyars, mm -hmm. um, Hungarians coming into Eastern Europe, and then also the Norsemen. Uh, up in the north, and then we shouldn't forget the Celts, uh, who had been around from time immemorial anyway. So, what we have then is, um, is, is Christianity, and more specifically the Catholic Church, holding a very unique position in this particular history of this particular era. And, and when we think about it, let's take a look at the two other great monotheistic religions and why they were not the unifying factor. The fact of the matter is that, first of all, the oldest of that being um, Judaism. Judaism had had spread, but it had, it spread through a diaspora, and um, was up until 70 A.D. basically a national religion um, centered on a temple cult, 
And after 70 AD, of course, with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple by the Romans, you have a dispersal of uh, Jewish populations throughout the Roman Empire. Now, we can't oversimplify that either. The fact of the matter is that uh, there were uh, Jewish populations throughout the Roman Empire prior to 70 AD. Uh, certainly, there a very thriving Jewish community in Rome itself, as well as other parts of the empire. And after 70 AD, not all Jews were expelled from uh, Judea. You still had a sizable population. There were other uh, rebellions later on. Uh, so um, we have to nuance all of this. Okay. okay. But after 70 AD, you do have a destruction of the uh, of the temple cult, and so uh, the Jewish priesthood, as it was understood, ever since Aaron and Moses, now was was destroyed. The daily sacrifice, the annual um, going to um, uh, the temple. Now all of that came to an end. What you have then is a Judaism survives down to today, but it's, it survives mainly through families. It's passed on very beautifully from one generation to another uh, in the home itself, especially around the meal, uh, you know, around the, the table. Each generation then passes on the faith and it's strengthened, that faith is strengthened in synagogues uh, and also in independent schools of scholars. Later on in the Middle Ages we'll see some of this. There are very few converts to Judaism, but quite honestly Judaism is not interested in converts. It's mainly interested in, uh, in, in preserving um, the um, uh, it, it's religion from generation to generation within its own families, mm -hmm. within its own synagogues, mm -hmm. within its own community. And so as a result of that, Judaism is not going to be the synthesizing force that's going to bring all of these desperate, um, disparate, <laughs> <laughs> desperate <too. laughs> yeah. uh, uh, groups together. Uh -huh. Now the other um, faith, the, the other monotheistic th faith that could do this would be Islam. And Islam certainly spread far and wide. But as, as someone remarked uh, back in the early centuries, the first century or two, I, and I forget who it is, uh, in, in, while they were in dialogue with a, uh, a Muslim, uh, they mentioned that Islam spread like a vast shallow lake. It's like a vast shallow lake. It spread very, very rapidly. It had uh, some very important elements that holds it together even to today. Most important, of course, is a holy book, the the Quran, and we'll look later on uh, at, at that. Um, it had scholars and interpreters of the Quran, of a whole, uh, a huge corpus, a huge body of what was called the Hadith. Uh, these are the sayings of Muhammad. Okay. Uh, the Quran itself is a, uh, a rendering of statements that Muhammad receives and then, um, and then recites those. Okay, in fact that's the Quran means that, the recitation. The Hadith on the other hand are sayings that somebody heard Muhammad once say. And some of them are valid and some of them are not valid. Uh, so there's a wide range. We'll talk more about that also. Um, but flowing from all of this, plus the, um, the traditions that are built up, you have Islamic law. 
the Sharia that is, um, is, is constructed. After Muhammad's death, you have his four successors called the Caliphs. That's a, we'll look at that also, but, but um, each of the Caliphs uh, adds something to Islam that was not there previously, but also, especially the la well, three of the four died violently. Right. And then you have dynasties, Islamic dynasties, that kind of um, husband and preserve the religion. But um, with, with the exception of, the, of one branch of Islam, the Shia, with the exception of that branch, there is not a, a hierarchy in the same sense that you have certainly in, in, uh, in the Christian church. You have a development of, of doctrine, but it's a relatively simple doctrine. And uh, again, a controlling discipline, but that discipline is done by custom. So that in some countries, um, the way Islamic life is interpreted even today is far different from others. In some countries, like in Saudi Arabia, you actually have religion police, besides civil police going around um, enforcing civil law, you have religious police that go around enforcing the strict interpretation of the Sharia. Okay. You know. Well, so the end result is, and particularly with the um, the second caliph uh, Omar, you're going to have an interest in conquest, not so much conversion. Now there will be a lot of conversion that'll take place. A lot of mo those Christian monophysites will find themselves coming over to Islam. Um, a lot of Arianists will find themselves coming over to Islam. It's one of the reasons why it spread so rapidly through that North African church that had been so such a rich Christian body for so many centuries. Now, let's look at the third great monotheistic religion, Christianity. And Christianity is, from its very beginning, evangelizing. That is to say, it brings the good news. Jesus um, gives that mandate. The last thing he does before the ascension is gives that mandate to go forth and to to bring the word to all nations and to baptize all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Christian from the very first day, Christians took that seriously. Look at the Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. Right after Pentecost, what did they do? They went right out and started preaching the good news, evangelizing. Now, this was especially true in cities. Um, the, um, the, the first two centuries, you had uh, a lot of evangelization that takes place. We can see that again in the letters of St. Paul, the, uh, the Catholic epistles, uh, all, all speak to, to that evangelization that takes place. And it's mainly in cities. You know, you look at a uh, uh, letter to the Romans, that's Rome, uh, the Corinthians, city of Corinth, um, Ephesians, that's Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonians. Galatians is about the only one that he's not directly uh, addressing to a city. That's a whole region in Asia Minor. You know, but by and large, Christianity spread as an urban um, religion. You also had, right from the very beginning, a holy book. Uh, in this case, it was the uh, the, the uh, Septuagint, the uh, Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, of course, translated into Greek. 
and then also the sacred writings right at, by the end of the first century the sacred writings of the gospels and the letters there was a ritual that was common all throughout the Christian world um, handed down from Jesus himself on the Last Supper mm -hmm. and uh, and then you had an organizing principle and I think this is important for us to understand too and the organizing principle of the church what brought unity to the church were the bishops there's a very interesting book I'll, I'll have a little quote from it a little bit later on um, came out just a couple years ago by um, Father Francis Sullivan He's a, um, a, a Jesuit who had taught for years at the, uh, at the Gregorian in, in Rome. And uh, the, the title of it is, From Apostles to Bishops, the Development of the Episcopacy in the Early Church. Ah. It's a very interesting, fascinating study uh, of, of, of how that takes place. But the bishops are incredibly important. You don't have anything quite like this, either in Judaism or in Islam. Uh, the bishops are are the shepherds that are direct descendants from the original apostles. That's very important. And these bishops settled in the empire's cities. They went about organizing the early church efforts um, in, uh, in in converting. And basically, as time went on in these cities, what you found was two groups of people those who were converted and those who weren't converted, yeah. right? The ones who were converted uh, became nicknamed the uh, Milites Christi, the soldiers of Christ. You've heard that term before, the Miles mm -hmm. Christi. Huh? Mm -hmm. um, those who were not converted were known as the Pagani. Now, today, we get the word pagan from that. But in, in the old Roman sense, Paganus, a Paganus was simply a citizen who was not under military authority. So they were simply not uh, soldiers of Christ. The bishops themselves were, were aided by two very important ordos, or orders. And one of those was the deacons, and the other were the presbyters. And uh, they had very specific works that they performed. Um, and, and that would, and, and most important of which, would be, thanks, would be worship uh, itself. And especially the worship that was done on late Saturday night that extended into early Sunday morning. That is the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's Supper. And that, again, from the, from, uh, the apostolic times forward, is the the central what you know what did we, I think was the Second Vatican Council called it both the um, the source and the summit of the church and so that's the most important thing that was being done along with that would be uh, uh, acts of, of charity uh, performing various acts of charity particularly with widows and orphans and also you found very early on um, uh, almost Oh, congregations, I guess you could call them, in a sense, of, um, of widows themselves who then took on some of these roles, the most famous of which are those, those widows in Rome that every night would walk along the Tiber River in small groups and, and gather up children, little babies, newborn infants who had been set out there by their families to die. Mm. 
And instead, the early Christians went along and gathered them. This is the first example of the pro-life movement, right? Yeah, really. You know, and and would would bring them in and raise those children wow. instead, those little orphans. Um, another thing that, that besides the Eucharist would be the other sacraments that were uh, being uh, administered, especially and most importantly would be baptism, and then also the bishop presiding over. Um, the uh, the discipline within the church, and this becomes very important as you have some rather strange groups cropping up, um, the Gnostics and uh, all kinds of other Manichaeans and and others, uh, in order to preserve the uh, the unity of the church and the uh, the orthodoxy of the doctrine, the bishops have to be able to take sometimes some rather strong steps, you know. So that's that's the bishops, and the bishops are all over the place, right? You know, I mean, they're they're all way over in Spain, and they're they're way over in uh, in present-day Iraq, and they're down in in um, in in Africa, and they're up in uh, in 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 southern Russia. They're they're like all over the place. So the whole question is then the question comes up then: Is there a hierarchy of the bishops? Okay. Uh, there's certainly collegiality of the bishops. We see many letters that are written back and forth uh, between these bishops. And, and this is not an easy time. Remember, there's a lot of persecution going on. Right. So for the first several hundred years, um, uh, there are there are moments when the church has to be practically underground. But even then, we have letters of these bishops writing to other communities, other bishops, recommending their their bishops to their communities um and so the question is what about is is there a, like a pecking order within mm -hmm. these bishops and in fact there are in fact i've got a, a formula for it okay and the formula is the more important the city plus the more important the founding apostle wow. equals the more important the bishop is in the eyes of the other bishops okay uh, See that? Okay. Okay. So l let me give you an example. Very important city in the ancient world of Alexandria mm -hmm. in Egypt. Um, it, it's uh, it's got one of the greatest libraries in the world. A wonderful um, um, cosmopolitan uh, urban area. So it's an important city. It's also uh, the church is traced back to the founding apostle of Saint Mark. Now that's a pretty important that's apostle. Exactly. So you get an important apostle in an important city, and you get an important, important bishop. bishop. <laughs> okay. that's, yeah, that's right. Now, I'll give you another example. Uh, way over in the far corners of the Roman Empire is Spain. In the far corner of Spain is a little tiny uh, town called Compostello. Okay. Okay. Um, the field of stars, oh, Compostela. Okay, okay. okay. Um, it's attributed. The founding of the church there is attributed to none other than Saint James. Oh, okay. Uh, Saint James the Elder. Well, that's a big name. He's got a big. He's got the founding apostle or a big apostle. Okay, big apostle, so but little town, little city. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, it, it doesn't hold the same rank. Now, later on in the Middle Ages, it's going to become one of the most important pilgrimage sites. Mm -hmm. Okay, But as a diocese, it's not going to be uh, all that terribly important. Okay. Okay, look around at another one. Let's see now. Let's take a big city right in the center of the Roman Empire, and all roads lead to it. 
Uh, Rome. Seven hills? <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, okay, so Rome. Rome, the okay. most important city in the entire Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, it's not called the Alexandrian Empire. <laughs> it's the Roman Empire. And who founds the church there? Uh, would be Peter. St. Peter, that's right. <laughs> and, of course, he's joined by St. Paul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you got Peter, the rock himself. So as much as the people down in Alexandria could going, wow, up in Rome, they're going, wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so you can see the significance right from the very beginning. We're talking about the first generation of the church, of the significance of the of the bishop of Rome, is is going to have uh, is going to command respect and obedience. But even before we, and, and I want to take some time and, and look at, at the importance of these bishops, but especially this bishop, but even before we do that, I want to say a couple things about this Christianity as a, as a religion that is spread out from Compostela all the way over in Spain, all the way to Persia, maybe even India, and if, if St. Thomas had been there, mm -hmm. uh, all the way down into Ethiopia, all the way north into Scythia, which is the southern part of Russia on the Black Sea, this, this spread. Now, what, what, what is it about Christianity? These are my ideas, but actually I'm getting a lot of these ideas from these three great authors, too, because they, they pinpointed this. First of all, the message the message is of a radical spiritual liberation. Seventy million people in the Roman Empire, and, and most everyone felt oppressed in some way or another. And here you have the message that God loves us, each and every one of us. And, what, and, 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 the, and the empire can enslave the body and can kill the body, but it has no effect on the soul. And so there is that, that radical spiritual liberation that is offered by Christianity. It's a message of human dignity. We are all made in the image and likeness of God, from the emperor right down to the lowest slave or serf. And it's a message also of community, a, a sense of belonging. And I, I, we, we can't underestimate this. The Christians saw themselves in those early years of persecution, those early centuries of persecution, they saw themselves as peregrini, that is to say strangers in a strange world, as travelers, but because they were all together they were fellow travelers. You know? They were strangers in the world, but yet they also shared some kind of a membership, a membership in the kingdom of God. Uh, here we'll find that you know, St. Augustine is so eloquent uh, in, in this, in his, his great book, The City of God. In other words, Christians could look around and say, yes, I am a member of the kingdom of God, and that means that in heaven someday, for all eternity, I'll be a member. But I can't discount on earth right now. I am a member of the kingdom of God, visible on earth. Now, what is that? Church. It's the church. And as a result, then Christianity, the religion of Jesus Christ, is made visible by the church. You know, uh, the um, the new canon law that came out in in, um, in 1983, uh, the Code of Canon Law, has a beautiful explanation about the nature of the church itself, and it speaks about the uh, the Church of Christ subsisting in the Catholic Church. 
subsisting in the Catholic Church. In other words, you can be a, there are Christians that are not Catholic, but the reality is that Christianity itself, the Church of Christ itself, I don't mean that in the denominational sense, right. I mean in the broadest sense, that um, subsists in the Catholic Church. If the Catholic Church did not exist, you couldn't see the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's the Church of Christ made, made visible and concrete. Now, how is that done? Well, that's done through the ecclesiastical organization, through the orders, the ordo. The Church, in a very real sense, is a theocracy directed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that inspiration is upon all members of the Church and especially upon its bishops individually and in council. And these bishops, individually in their own diocese, as well as in council, gathered together in, 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 in the, the college, in a sense, okay, they represent not only the community to the world, but they also represent Christ to the community. Mm -hmm. So that's that vital role that the, uh, that the bishop plays. And it is this role is so awesome. Uh, now, again, we're going back a little bit, but it is so awesome that when there is a run-in between the Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose, and the Emperor Theodosius, this powerful, powerful man, because he had gone in and, and he punished the, uh, the city of, of, of Thessalonica and slaughtered a bunch of people, and Ambrose turned around and said, you sinned, and you need, you need to do penance. Well, in the former days, the emperor would have sent troops and lopped off Ambrose's head. Mm -hmm. Instead, the emperor himself went to Milan, went to the cathedral, knelt down in front of Bishop Ambrose, and begged for um, uh, forgiveness. That's pretty incredible. That's very incredible. Even to doing you can uh, use some penance. of that to the humility today. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, often throughout church history, you find it. So, as we begin uh, our look at um, at um, the the Middle Ages, we have to remember that there is actually a whole. Maybe someday we'll do a whole um, course of presentations on this early church. But we do have to remember that um, that the that the church that we're beginning to talk about right here has already had an incredible history behind it. You know, we've already had the great age of fathers. We've got Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine and, and Cyril and Methodius and, my goodness, you just go on and on. And um, we've also had a, a, an age of martyrs, several ages, great and small. Um, it's incredible the number of, uh, I'm, I'm reading right over now, a, a four-volume hagiography of, of saints in the church. And, of course, we've got the regular ones that we look at the calendar and, you know, but there are so many others that are that, that don't make it up on the hit parade. <laughs> uh, and, and each of them has fascinating little stories also. And so there's so many martyrs during that period of time. We have so many uh, hermits. We have so many mystics. Um, remember that, that by the time we begin this, already St. Benedict and St. Scholastic have been uh, in their grave for a couple centuries. And, uh, and that monastic movement is, is alive and well. Um, also, along with all of these, we've also had a whole bunch of heretics sure. and apostates. 
We've had historians already, Eusebius of Caesarea for one thing, and here's the kicker. By the time we begin looking at our story in 800, we've already had 94 popes. Wow. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. And, and of course, we, we've we had that many because of the abrupt end of their lives. Yeah. Right? Because there's so many were just murdered or martyred, very martyred I guess. Martyred, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very uh, very quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, that's right. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to begin with um, actually looking at the predecessor of Leo III, Hadrian okay. I. Fascinating fellow. And, of course, the Christmas crowning of Charlemagne, which is what we're going to be doing pretty soon. I think we've got, we have to look at the Germans next week, and then after that we'll actually begin with the course. Um, <laughs> but, but even before we do that, I think it's important for us to step back again, wallow a little bit more in early church history and early church development, and ask ourselves why it was important that Charlemagne went to Rome and that he was um, he was crowned by the Bishop of Rome and not the Bishop of Trier mm-hmm. or the Bishop of Aachen. Now, why is that so important? And so let's go ahead and um, take a look uh, a little bit more carefully then, I think we need to do that, at the Bishop of Rome okay. and, uh, and who he was and, and what this is all about. We said before the great big uh, um, uh, sense of awe that it's St. Peter who goes to Rome. And remember that um, the Bishop of Aachen isn't mentioned anywhere in Scripture. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't turn to the Bishop of, uh, of Trier and say, uh, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says that to Peter in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. Also, if you look back either into the Latin of, of the Vulgate or to the Greek, even before that, you'll see that he is using the, the second person singular when he speaks this. Uh, I, I've often heard, and I've, I've had a number of conversations with people that say that, um, that he was speaking to everybody, to all the apostles um, at, at uh, Caesarea Philippi. Um, and in an English you could get that because it's you is you, whether it's plural or singular. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, if you go back to the original languages, he was very specifically speaking to Peter because Peter had just given that um, that confessional statement, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So there you have that singular there. The same thing is also true when you get to John 21. Now, in John 20, when uh, when Jesus um, appears after the resurrection and he uh, gives the authority to bind and loose on earth, there he's using the second person plural, uh, familiar voice, to all of the disciples. But in John 21, uh, when you have the meeting at the Sea of Tiberias, remember this is when he grills fish for, okay. <laughs> uh, for the disciples for breakfast, and he takes... Peter off on the side and he says to him feed my lambs and feed my sheep he's speaking again second person singular giving a command specifically to Peter to take care of the church you know the fact of the matter too is all we have to do is, is just look in scripture um, when um, 
when the apostles find out that Jesus has been raised from the dead, what happens? You have a foot race. They all run out to the, the empty tomb. John's a little bit younger. He's, you know, he hasn't been smoking like Peter. And so he gets there first. <laughs> Smoke fish, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he gets there first, but... And in John's Gospel, it's very clear that uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved did not go into the tomb. There's no indication that he did not go in because he was a scary cat. Instead, he did not go in because of respect. Peter would be the first one in. It's a sign of respect. Waits for Peter. Also, go through the New Testament. Every listing of the apostles, whenever there's a listing of more than one apostle, Peter's name is always first. I think it's a very, um, it, it's a very clear clue on the part of the gospel writers of the primacy of Peter, right, right from the very beginning. Then you go into this other period, which uh, Father Sullivan re- uh, calls the sub-apostolic period. That is to say, after the apostles themselves uh, die, and then they have passed on through the laying on of hands, their authority and their, the leadership to this next generation, again, you see high respect as a, as a, um, uh, a hierarchy within those bishops. You have uh, letters like, for instance, of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who spoke of the, of the um, Roman bishops in a, in a, in a, with a sense of primacy. This letter is 110 A.D., you know, we, we have that already. Uh, St. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, in 185, we, we have his letter saying basically the same thing. We have a, a case of, of the uh, third pope, St. Clement um, of Rome, writing to the, uh, the church in Corinth and basically telling them, hey, you guys, now you listen to your bishop now. Don't be playing around. Now, what gave him the authority to do that? Right. Uh-huh. Um, you also have um, uh, Pope Sylvester I, uh, Pope, uh, he during the time of uh, Constantine, uh, Pope Julius I, also speaking with authority in supporting St. Athanasius mm-hmm. uh, over the, uh, the controversy of Arianism. Mm-hmm. At the uh, Council of Nicaea, people jump uh, right away and say, well, wait a minute, you know, the, the Pope wasn't there. He didn't, he didn't go to Nicaea. That's true. He didn't. There were around 300 bishops that did assemble at Nicaea, and he sent his own legates, uh, both uh, Vincent and, and Vitus, were there representing him, and after the the council was completed, uh, the Pope signed off on on those uh, uh, those doctrinal issues that uh, that were settled there. Later in 344, you've got the the Council of uh, Sardica that declared that any deposed bishop had the right to appeal to the Roman Pontiff. So there were bishops who were actually being uh, taken out of office, and and this was uh, this was generally being done by local consuls. Uh, the mm-hmm. presbyters would get together and and vote their bishop out of office. But here you have a consul itself at Sardica that says, okay, but before that bishop is removed, he has a right to appeal to Rome. So again, the uh, the Pope, to get again. Mm-hmm. yeah. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, again, the Council Fathers reaffirmed the primacy of the Pope. Now, this is Constantinople. 
uh, once again, a very important, uh, here's an interesting dynamic here. It's an important uh, city. Mm -hmm. It's next to Rome. It's the most important city. And after Rome's destruction in 410, it, it, it's the, the most important city in the, in the empire. Who's the apostle that founded the church in Constantinople? There wasn't any. That's right. That's right. Even the city itself wasn't founded. It was founded by Constantine mm -hmm. centuries okay. after the apostles had all been dead and gone. So uh, here you have then uh, the council reaffirming the primacy of the pope and a uh, very interesting turn of events with Pope uh, Damasus. When he receives the affirmation, he says, thank you very much. I appreciate the affirmation, but... I remember that it is not coming from the consul. It comes from Christ himself. It's Pope Damasus who begins using the term apostolic see for the Diocese of Rome, and it's stuck, and it's the only one. Later popes are also going to assert universal authority, but this is going to de depend in many ways upon the personality of the pope and upon his circumstances. Sometimes it was imp impossible for him to exert his authority uh, because of the circumstances in the empire, sometimes because of his own personality. Mm -hmm. uh, there were just, you know, the popes come in all different flavors. Right. And some of them are just quiet, meek fellows doing what they're doing, and others were more um, forward about, uh, about all of that. You have, for instance, a, a great case of Pope Innocent I, when, um, when the patriarch of Constantinople, a guy by the name of John Chrysostom, <laughs> Uh, runs afoul of the empress and finds himself kicked out, sent out to exile. Uh, of course, he's going to be canonized. He's one of the great church fathers, yeah. um, great inspiration to all of us, but he's also going to be in exile. And what happens is that you have um, Pope Innocent I turning around and chastising uh, St. John's replacement, uh, the next um, uh, patriarch of Constantinople. Pope Leo I, uh, Leo the Great, himself, in another case, intervened with the Patriarch of Constantinople. This is uh, the Patriarch Nestorius, um, who, of course, we've talked a little bit about with it being sort of at the root of the, of the monos, monophysticism and monothelitism. So by the time you get to the election of, of Pope Hadrian I, and that takes place in 772, if there is such a thing as a Petrine theory, and that's often secular historians will refer to this as the Petrine theory, if there is such a thing as a Petrine theory, it's an applied theory. It is a reality. Um, some people will want to deny it, but the reality is that it's there. It's also um, a reality that is um, surrounded by all kinds of of difficulties that are going to try to move against it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the reality is that if you take a look at the, the political map of Italy in the late 700s, you might respect the Bishop of Rome, the Supreme Pontiff, for his spiritual leadership, but he doesn't have any, there is no reason for anyone in Italy to fear him as a secular ruler or to do what he says except out of the moral authority which is you know that's all we need right today maybe exactly <laughs> you know? but back then you know you had all those Merovingians running around acting goofy mm -hmm. and certainly in Italy the same thing was also true there was a very uh, aggressive 
kingdom in northern Italy made up of a group of, of uh, people known as the Lombards. It just so happens at that particular time they had a, uh, a king by the name of Desiderius who brought out all the worst in the Lombards. Then on top of that you had a little bit further down on the east coast you had the Exarchy of Ravenna, uh, very independent. Uh, much more dependent upon Constantinople than upon Rome. A little bit further down that, uh, that east coast again, you've got the city of Spoleto, and the Duke of Spoleto is, uh, he is one tough cookie mm -hmm. they have to deal with. And then further down below that in southern Italy, you have the Duke of Benevento. And, and these guys, I mean, it's like, a scene from The Godfather. Oh no! You know they're just rough, tough characters, and the only civil authority anywhere around is the emperor, way over in Byzantium, and he's of almost no use at all. Mm -hmm. As we saw last time around, um, they had their own problems, mm -hmm. and especially in the late seven hundreds, they had their own problems with iconoclasm. And so, uh, ultimately, when Hadrian is elected he's going to have to clean up the city and as tough as it's going to be he's going to have to confront some Romans who had uh, allied themselves to the Lombards. Now, these people in Rome figured that the, uh, that the Lombards were eventually going to take over all of Italy and they might as well get in on their good side. And one of the things they did right before Pope Hadrian's election was they murdered two Romans who were pro-Frankish. So they've got blood on their hands. And, and so um, Hadrian is, is going to have to do something about this. Now before I, I uh, tell you what he ends up doing, um, I, I, I want to tell you one more story about him. Okay. And it's a fascinating little one. It, it, it happened, uh, it, it turned out that last summer when I was sitting down at my cabin reading all of these books about this period of time, I came across the pontificate of Pope Hadrian. And uh, the author that I was reading mentioned that when he was elected, uh, in order to um, have have um, better control over the papal government, he brought in some nephews. And that's usually not a good move. And and so, but anyway, he brings these nephews in and he puts them in charge of various offices. Mm -hmm. And it's said that one of the things he did was he had a huge um, farm or a, uh, a plantation. They called him a latifundia, and and this latifundia was located outside of Rome in a day's journey or so. And what he did was he built up this 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 farm and uh, poured all kinds of money into it. And I'm reading along and I'm going, oh no, I know what you're going to say. Sure enough, it was papal money. Mm -hmm. He was spending money on his farm from from the Roman treasury and they had the, the finest orchards in all of Italy and they had the best vineyards in all of Italy and they were husbanding, they were, they were uh, breeding cattle and sheep and all kinds of things and, and, and everything. And so I, anyway, my, and I had been reading for hours and my eyes hurt a bit so I took my glasses off and I just kind of mused a bit and I go, well, I don't know anything about this Pope Adrian but it doesn't sound good. Anyway, I, I, went back, put my glasses back on, turned the page, and the author continued on, and he said that all of the proceeds from this farm 
were then gathered up and brought every day to Rome. And there at the, at the Lateran, a special dining hall was built. And every poor person in Rome had a, uh, an open invitation to come and feast like a king oh. every day. Uh, wow. <laughs> that was a great page to turn. Yeah, wasn't it? Never sh- yeah. what a guy. <laughs> so that's just a little insight into this Pope Hadrian the First. He, he's quite a fellow, and 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 as I say, when he he bit the bullet on this deal with the the Lombards, um, he ended up sowing what he reaped. And King Desiderius decided he was going to come down and whoop up on this guy. And he began gathering an army together and began moving, marching toward Rome. And along the way, seizing church lands, one after another. Pope Hadrian could not turn to the Byzantine Empire. Couldn't do it. And so he turned instead to the Franks up in, up in, Germany, or up in France and Germany. And he, he begged for help and protection. And the king, uh, Charles, the son of Pepin, brought an army over the western Alps. And the first thing he did, he, was, he went right to the Lombards and he laid siege to the city of Pavia, which is up in northern Italy. And who happened to be in the city at the time, but none other than King Desiderius. Oh. So he couldn't get out either. And finally, uh, he had to surrender. And after he did... King Charles then um, went down to, uh, Prince Charles then went down to Rome, and this was uh, at the Easter of 774. And as his army, his Frankish army, was marching down uh, through Italy, uh, it's the coming together of, of the crown and the tiara. They had uh, planned it so that the Frankish army would arrive in Rome just in time for Holy Saturday. Ah. And so as they were marching in the last part, they're, they're passing along the road. This is one of those ancient Roman roads that, that skirted along um, Lake um, Bracciano, 24 miles outside of Rome. As he got around the far side of it, he came across a huge honor guard that had been sent out from Rome to receive him. And all the civic leaders were there. And they conducted him in to the city of Rome itself. And um, as he arrived, the the Duke of Rome had his entire army out in review for the King of uh, the Franks to to see. There were huge bands of children running in front of him with olive branches and palm branches. People uh, came out and applauded him all along the way. But the Pope wasn't there. The Pope was at St. Peter's. Mm-hmm. And so when he was conducted into the atrium of St. Peter's, remember now, this is not the St. Peter's we know. That was built during the Renaissance. This right. is the old St. Peter's. When, um, when he was conducted into the atrium of St. Peter's, he was uh, given the protocol of a Patricius, of a defender of the city. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, Charles was really impressed. So impressed was he that when he arrived at the stairs of the, of the old St. Peter's, he knelt down and crawled up the stairs on his knees. He got to the top of the, of the steps. Pope Hadrian was there to receive him and to help him up, and all the priests of Rome were there. And, and then what follows afterwards is three days of prayer and, and the Eucharist, just absolutely incredible, just incredible mm. experience. And, uh, and on Easter, 
Wednesday, then uh, the Pope and the King went into the tomb of St. Peter. Now, mm -hmm. remember the old St. Peter's was built on top of the tomb, mm -hmm. just as the new St. Peter's is built on top of the tomb. And there they prayed at the tomb of St. Peter, and they pledged to each other mutual peace and mutual loyalty. Wow. And um, with that, Charles confirmed what's known as the Donation of Pepin. And, and this is the central portion of Italy, which is given over to the Pope for the, uh, the Pope's use as a, um, a way of paying basically for the papacy and also protecting the papacy. That, of course, stays for a thousand years. Only in, in, uh, in 1870 is it actually taken away by the new Italian government. Right. But for all that period of time, those papal states are there. And, and so he reaffirms that donation of, of Pepin. And also he adopts the title then King of the Franks and of the Lombards. And as well as uh, patrician and defender of the Romans, of the people of, the, of Rome. And so with that, then Charles leaves, goes back up to uh, the Frankish kingdoms. And um, seven years later, uh, now a very elderly Pope Hadrian will anoint Charles's son, Pepin, as the king of Italy. This is in, in 781. And the significance about that date is that in papal documents, 781 now is the date that is used um, for, for documents. Up until that time, the date of the empire was used. Oh, okay. um, the, the date of the Byzantine reign. So in other words, one would say um, in the year of our Lord 781 during the 12th year of the reign of uh, the Emperor uh, um, uh, I don't know, Michael the first, whatever. You know, it's in that year that they dropped in the seventh year of the reign of Emperor okay. Michael I. And they stopped referring to the, um, the Byzantine Empire in papal documents. That is, a, I think, a very clear sign of, of the uh, papacy turning toward the West, no longer relying on the East, but now relying on, on the West, and particularly the Carolingians, mm -hmm. in order to bring about the kind of peace that's going to be needed in Europe in order for the, um, the authority of the church to be exerted, the moral authority of the church to be exerted. Wow. Great, great. I wouldn't say story, but it's not a story. Great history. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's history. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just you know, it's it's fascinating stuff, it and, is. Um, and and so, like I say, we're melding together all of these elements. We've got one more element to look at, and okay. that's going to be the German tribes themselves. How do they change over the three, four hundred years that they've been around? They mm -hmm. they came in in the in the four hundreds. Um, disintegrated the Roman Empire, but they didn't go away. They stayed. Now, over those those three four hundred years, what happens to them? Um, we've already seen one group, the Lombards, a bunch of bad boys in the neighborhood. Uh, what about some of the others? And then, um, then with with that, we'll we'll be able to see how. Uh, the papacy, in particular, pulls together all of these elements at Christmas of 800 mm. and one hopes is going to establish the Holy Roman Empire 
Um, unfortunately, the story is going to show that the Carolingians aren't up to the task. Um, and, and, well, history happens. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you certainly have a, a, a good faith effort, and it is going to lay the foundation for Western civilization that we know today. All right. Thank you very much, Father. And okay. Shall we close with a prayer? Let's blessing? do. Yeah. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is now, now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Certainly. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.